0: Welcome to The Public Morality. Collective grief happens when a community, however defined, all experience change or loss. Collective grief can manifest in the wake of major events such as war, natural disasters, a public health crisis, or others that result in mass casualties or widespread tragedy. Like individual grief. There is a feeling of lack of control that comes with collective grief where one is unable to prevent the loss or change and we feel powerless in its wake. There have always been a segment of the American population that's had to deal in some capacity with collective grief, but this has been exacerbated by COVID nineteen. Joining me to discuss collective grief and how much it manifests is Michelle Cassandra Johnson. Johnson is the author of Finding Refuge, heart work for Healing Collective Grief. Michelle Cassandra Johnson, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Hmm. I, I want to begin this conversation by having you define collective grief. What is collective grief, as you understand it?
1: Well, um, my work around it and thinking around it, really came from my own experience of of grieving individually, but also with an awareness that we're interconnected and always having an experience of, of grieving collectively in some way, even if we don't want to acknowledge the losses we've experienced. And for me, collective grief feels connected to many systems of oppression that cause grief for folks who have less power, systems that have been intentionally created and constructed by people to maintain power. Um, and I feel like there is a pattern that dominant cultures created where we don't necessarily or are not encouraged to acknowledge our history and what we've lost. And I just don't believe we can heal if we do that. So, this collective grief is really about um, acknowledging our grief related to systemic oppression, is how I would talk about it. And also, I feel like in general, people are not encouraged to make space for their grief individually. Um, and so this is also a call for us to not only acknowledge that we're having an experience of collective grief, but to, to really make space to move through what we need to move through so we can heal and move forward.
0: Hmm. Um, Since so, so we are talking about sort of grief in the collective, but at the same time, it's, it's unique to the individual. I'm assuming uh, collective grief can manifest in myriad ways. How, how, how do you see that?
1: Yes, um, it can, and our own individual experiences of grief can do the same. So for some people, um, after they experience a loss, and this could be a loss of a person, it could be a loss of a relationship, or a dream, or a transition somewhere, a move. A many There are many ways we experience loss. Sometimes people experience loss, and they feel things physically, and they're not clear that they're grieving, but their body is telling them something's going on. Sometimes it happens more mentally, and that it could be difficult to concentrate or, or focus. People may experience depression. They may experience anxiety. They may um, lose faith in in thinking about something that's bigger than them and, and sort of disconnect from spirit. In that way, is how I talk about it. And so these are things we can experience individually and then collectively. Uh, I really feel like communities who've been marginalized throughout time have been grieving out loud in so many ways and saying, pay attention to us. Here's what we need to survive and thrive. People have been calling for that very actively. And I think that's an expression of grief too, of being denied access to what we need, being denied access to our freedom, being denied access to deciding what we need to be free and what we want rather than having someone else decide that for us. Um, or limit our access to our liberation. So um, I feel like we have a lot of examples of, of both collective care and collective grieving in, in communities who've been marginalized. Mm.
0: With, 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 that la- with that said, uh, have we been conditioned in your view to see collective grief as something that exists outside the box of what is defined amorphously as normal?
1: Yes. And I think this is also true individually. I think that there are many narratives around us needing to be strong. Um, and often that means not making space to to grieve or be sad. It means just keep keep it going, keep moving forward. And I certainly receive those messages from my my mother and I understand why I received those messages from her because that's what she had to do to take care of us amid all that was happening in her life and all that was happening in the world. And so I think there's conditioning around that. And then we know conditioning becomes a pattern. And so, um, I feel like in that way, this pattern of not acknowledging or avoiding what needs attention that that's seen as normal, but that's not normal. And it's causing a lot of a lot of trauma. And I feel like the conversation about collective grief the way that I am having it connected to systems of oppression is a a newer conversation. I think, um, I'm not sure, I'm sure people have thought about it, but I haven't been in conversation with many people who have connected our history, for example, of white supremacy and sexism and ableism and all of the isms and systems of superiority to this experience of collective loss. And of course, we're in the moment of well, we've been in a year and a half plus of COVID-19, which feels like the perfect time for us to talk about collective grief because of all that that has illuminated for us. But the tendency is get back to normal, keep moving, um, open the economy, all these things that we've heard throughout the pandemic when people are dying every day. And there have been uprisings in the middle of this pandemic as well. And it's just highlighted all of the ways in which um, power is taken away from people on so many levels. And I think some of that is um, our our desire to avoid that is conditioned, um, a conditioned tendency and a pattern. And that's become a cultural norm, which it's not normal to be doing the things that we're doing to each other. It's not normal to have, you know, at this Point. I think two thousand people dying a day in the U.S. from COVID. Still, right. This isn't normal. Nothing about this is normal.
0: Mm-hmm. In, in, in that answer, you you mentioned uh, uh, the, the message to be to be strong. And one of my takeaways from from your latest book, Finding Refuge: um, Hard Work for Healing Collective Grief, is that you that you redefine normal. That you turn what we have previously understood as normal on its head. How, how, how do you see that?
1: I think so. Um, and this has shown up in a lot of my work. The, um, the desire for us to go back and understand how we came to be in this particular moment so we can be really intentional about how we want to move forward. And I think that's a way of flipping this on its head. Like, hey, wait, we have some excavation to do and some work to do, or we're just going to keep doing what we've been doing. And this isn't working for many of us. It's only, I don't know if it's working for anyone, actually, but certainly people are benefiting from this cultural norm around avoiding the truth. About what's going on, like people are benefiting in systems from that, um, even if I think we're all being deeply impacted by this level of denial and avoidance. So, in in that way, yes, it, of asking for us to tell the truth, I think that's um, an antidote to systems like white supremacy and capitalism, and um, to this into a space of of digging deep to understand where we're implicated, how we've been harmed, how we're colluding with these systems. So, yes, I feel like that's a way to
0: turn this on its head uh i want to turn our attention in this conversation to to your latest book finding refuge um you you begin in the introduction uh with the acquittal of george zimmerman uh for the death of trayvon martin and 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 i know we've talked about this before but talk about how that event influenced this book project and how and, and your understanding of collective grief
1: yeah, so in that moment, of course, um, I had been Black up until that point, and I'm still Black. So racism wasn't a new experience for me or awareness. I was also a dismantling racism educator, and I, I still am, and an activist. So the issues surrounding that were not new to me, and yet something in that moment happened that felt very different. Um, And physically what happened to me is I heard the news and I fell to the floor and felt like um, I was watching myself go through some traumatic response, but I was also in the middle of the traumatic response. And that looked like sobbing. It looked like wailing. Um, I felt just not grounded, not embodied, not grounded, even though, you know, to some degree I was witnessing this happen. So there was some awareness and all I can say about it now is I feel like what was happening was all of this ancestral grief was coming up. It's not that I put a lot of hope in the justice system, you know, at any point or or at that moment in time, but I also know that it was a pivotal moment for many people in the country too, and of course, um, the Black Lives Matter movement emerged from that, that moment, so something was different about that for many, many people. Um, and it propelled some folks into action and some people became more embedded in, in their beliefs and their values um, and their their um, the ways in which they're benefiting from systems like white supremacy. So how I understand it is ancestral trauma was coming up. So it was like all of the trauma related to white supremacy and racism that my ancestors were not able to heal. And then all of my trauma connected to that. And then an awareness that another black boy had been taken by white supremacy and it was just too much to contain. And so um, that to me, I mean, it's a description of of collective grief, because I was holding my ancestors grief. And I feel like, in in a lot of ways, the the world's grief, because that was such a pivotal moment, and then my own. And it was quite overwhelming. um, And but I think that is what what, at least that experience of collective grief was like, and an acknowledgement that you know, I'm not the only person affected by this. There were many Black people affected by it, Black mothers, Black families, um, many people affected by that that moment. And so, that at the time, I didn't know what would manifest from that. But what came from that is, oh, we need a space to grieve. Many years later, in 2020, and then finding refuge came from that virtual space because of COVID that I held with 40 people where we move through conversation and affinity spaces and ritual to talk about the moment and our grief that we were coming to this space with. And then I was like, oh, I'm gonna, Finding Refuge is about this. It is about this this um, particular moment and all that we're moving through and all that we have not moved through. Um, and again, what I said earlier, the things we need to move through to to heal. So that's, that's my understanding of it. I'm actually working on another book right now about healing together in community which feels like a, a natural next project in response to finding refuge and in response to that moment of cracking open when I heard about the acquittal of George Zimmerman. Hmm.
0: Uh, staying, staying with introduction, you wrote, quote, I kept moving because dominant culture is a system that inherently believes some people are superior and others are inferior based on their identities, i.e. race, gender gender identity and expression, age, physical or mental capabilities and sexual orientation had not created conditions for my grief to be experienced, felt or seen. Now, for me, that passage represented the epicenter of the challenge that you present. And any one part of those aforementioned listings must confront the impediments placed by, as you define dominant culture, in order to... Uh, to reconcile their grief and, and, and again, your thoughts, how, how, how do you see that passage?
1: Well, it speaks to, to some of what I named earlier around our cultural norms um, related to grieving. And um, I really think about systems that say we only have a certain amount of time to grieve, that grief is time limited, um, that only certain losses are are valid, and others are not. Um, and what's named in that are identities related to our, where we have power or where we're marginalized, and power is taken away. So there's a um, acknowledgement of systems causing grief for us as well. And so, um, for me as a black person in that particular moment. I feel like white supremacy has never really made space for me to grieve or be seen um, or be seen as, as valid or valuable. Uh, And I'm not really looking for white supremacy to do that because that's not how it works. Like that's not how it was designed. It's not how it operates, but it hasn't even, even like acknowledged that I'm a a valid being. So there's no way it's going to acknowledge that the grief that I'm holding ancestral and the grief related to what's playing out in real time is um, grief that needs to be, worked with and needs to be tended and needs to be honored and that's what that's about like all of these different points of oppression we might embody that the systems of of oppression are not even equipped to see us as humans and instead are dehumanizing us all of the time in so many different ways and so there's no way these systems are set up to hold our grief and instead because of systems like capitalism the the norm is be productive keep Move forward. Do your work. You're out for three days. You lost somebody. Now get back to work. Right? Like that's the the tendency and the norm. So that's what that passage is about.
0: Hmm. Uh, I want to uh, uh, go over with you and have you comment on them further on what I what I define is um, sort of some some prerequisites. Uh, for, to fully understand this book, um, the first one is review the shared language section and assumptions to familiarize yourself with the language presented in Finding Refuge.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, often, shared language is or glossaries in the back of of books, and I put it up front um, because I use a lot of different words like. Trauma and collective grief, and I use the word spirit to describe God, and I use the words white supremacy and words like social location. So, there are all these words that I'm quite sure some folks may be familiar with, and some folks may have a different definition of. And I want to be really clear like, this is what I mean when I say these things, not that folks have to agree with that language, so they know my perspective and the context. Um, So, that's why I feel like it's important. And I also think in general, if we are organizing in any way or strategizing around um an issue that we need some shared understanding and language Mm. if we're going to do it together even if we come from different backgrounds so that is how i why i offered the shared language um in this way of of um letting people know this is where i'm coming from and i am calling people into action not only for themselves but for the collective and and we need to understand these things to take action so that's the shared language piece.
0: Uh, second one, as you explore spiritual practices, get a private journal for recording reflections and staying grounded during uncertain times. Why Why is that critical to the process?
1: You know, spiritual practice is, I mean, includes many contemplative practices, one of which is self-study and, and journaling is one way that we can engage in self-study and there are many meditation is another way we can engage in self-study, understanding our conditioned responses and implicit bias. There are a lot of ways we can engage in self-study. And I really want, because the the book is set up with chapters and then practices after each chapter, and it's a journey, I want people to record their journey and to record insights and um, their journaling prompts throughout. So I want people to be able to go back and look, and see or revisit journaling prompts that they previously um, responded to or reflected on. Because I'm really, it's its not a, it's a deep dive. That's how I think about this book. And then it's a book that will work on people, like it is work and it will work on on anybody who reads it if they're open to it. And so this journal is a way to, to recognize how have I been working? Right. And what is deepened for me and what do I now understand that's different as a result of of engaging with Finding Refuge.
0: Uh, The next one. Create space in your home, office, car or natural landscape to practice meditations and, and, and breath practices offered throughout the book.
1: So I'm a a yoga practitioner and teacher, and I do a fair amount of work in the yoga industry around making it more inclusive and really liberatory, like getting back to the essence of what yoga is. And within that industry and realm, there are a lot of, at least in the West here, there are a lot of norms um, focused on what you have to wear to practice, where you need to be to practice, what kind of props you need to have to practice. And... I feel like we actually just need a space to be and we need our breath and we need often some guidance um, or some sort of entry point. And so I want people to be intentional about how they move through the book. And I also want them to understand you don't have to go to a 45 minute movement class or meditation to, to understand this. You need a space that's yours where you can sit and breathe and be with yourself. And so that's why this is in here. And again, it's to to practice with care too. Um, because, you know, I always say I was a therapist for a long time, that the practices that we need in the moment of crises, if we haven't practiced those before the crisis, it's going to be really hard to draw them up in the moment. And so I really want people to be in a consistent practice so that when they're in the deepest heartbreak, like I was when George Zimmerman was acquitted, that they have something to, to call on. Um, and so that's why I invite people to pick a space and remind them they don't need all of these different things to, to engage in the practice of, of yoga or spiritual practice or contemplative practice.
0: Is, is there uh, a relationship, what is the relationship between grief and being able to to breathe?
1: Um, in my first book, Skill in Action, Radicalizing Your Yoga Practice to Create a Just World, Um, there's a a section and it's actually referenced in Finding Refuge 2 about how oppression takes the breath away. So it takes the breath away physically by extinguishing the breath. It also, I think, takes the breath away spiritually, mentally, emotionally um, in all of these different ways. Um, So it's not just a physical experience of having the breath taken away. And um, that statement came out of my mouth after I... Um, watched the video of Eric Garner being murdered and I don't watch the videos, but something told me to watch it. And so I watched it and I went to teach yoga right after it. And I was leading a meditation. And I said, we live in a culture where oppression takes the breath away, which I knew in my body, but I had never said it out loud in that way. Um, And I'm sure it struck people in the space. And it struck me when I heard myself say it. And it was definitely in response to watching um, Eric Garner's breath be extinguished and how people treated him and dehumanized him even in his his death. Like people wouldn't touch him. The paramedics wouldn't touch him. It was really horrific. Um, and so that's where where oppression takes the breath away. And I have referenced how these systems that cause grief for us are rooted in oppression and our systems of superiority that make whole groups of people feel inferior and actually work to make whole groups of people feel inferior. So in that way, I feel like there's a connection between oppression and the breath being taken away and um, grief as well. And I also know that when we're in a traumatic um, experience, often we hold the breath and grief and loss can feel deeply traumatic especially the way I've written about it as a collective experience. Um, and so a lot of finding refuge is, is is returning to the breath and remembering that the act of breathing in a culture that doesn't want us to breathe is a radical act. Um, and it is a liberatory act, and it's a life-giving act. Hmm.
0: You also challenge the reader to... Uh Choose an object that's meaningful to you and an object that represents your heart's capacity to be open and acknowledge your heartbreak. Well, say more about that, if you would.
1: So in, in my first book, Skill in Action, I had people choose an object that related to social justice, and I wanted them to place it somewhere where they'd see it almost every day or it was something they could come back to, something that became a sacred object as a representation of them moving through that book and process. And I wanted the same in Finding Refuge as well um, because it becomes this symbol of the work in this book and the journey. And also it's a, it's a symbol to come back into the heart. Um, a question that I often ask people is, how is your heart? And sometimes people ask me that, but it's a different way of asking how someone is, right? Often people say, how are you? And they're not asking about my heart, but my heart may be broken for 55 reasons. And so this object can become this... this um, space holder for the heart and a place to come back to just like the journal, just like the place to breathe and sit the intentional space for folks. Oh. That's my dog, Jasper barking in the Hi, background.
0: J- Hello, Jasper. Um, I, he, he's questioning your last answer. He's, um, I know. <laughs> uh, I'm curious. Um, could you share what article you chose?
1: I have a, um, actually I have two objects. One is a big, um, chunk of rose quartz which is a crystal that is all about the heart Um, and it's about compassion and it's about connecting to the heart but also um, softening it's also about settling the heart when it feels activated and broken and the other object is um, I have my grandmother's gloves her ushering gloves from church She, she transitioned in 2017 and I remember her being a church usher and um, everything that she did in the church, and so when she transitioned, I saw her ushering gloves and her Bible, and I got both of them. Um, and her ushering gloves sit on my my altar. Um, I have an ancestor altar that's behind me. Jasper, I don't know what he's barking at, but he's having a lot of feelings. Oh, he's barking at someone who's going up the street so of course, of course <laughs> this he, is not too disruptive oh uh, uh, no no it, it, of course
0: he is but he's actually challenging your your uh, the authenticity of your questions just your answers just he be careful. really
1: is <laughs> he's so funny so i have these the ushering gloves and they just um i mean in so many ways after my grandmother transitioned she she like showed up right away as an ancestor for me, and I have written a chapter about her and finding refuge. And um, she is a reminder of the heart and the heartbreak I felt when she transitioned, but also like my heart's capacity to open because of her um, influence in my life and her care for me.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with author Michelle Cassandra Johnson about collective grief. Johnson is the author of Finding Refuge: Heartwork for Healing Collective Grief. Uh, Michelle. In this larger canvas of grief that that, that you address it, it actually my words seems more daunting um you began talking about um trayvon martin and but at but at that time um the grief you felt for trayvon martin uh brianna taylor eric garner uh, Ar- uh Ahmaud Arbery, George floyd were not. In your vocabulary. But now they, they were probably inconceivable. And yet here we are in 2021. Not only is the inconceivable conceivable, but isn't the fact that it's not surprising just makes the grief even worse?
1: Yeah, um, such a, a deep question, because... Um, how I feel is that I'm grieving all of the losses you just named and more, and I'm anticipating the next loss. Um, And that's a a real, and I'm living in a black body in a country that doesn't want blackness to be. And I'm talking about white supremacy and dominant cultures and save America again, that kind of rhetoric, like for who? And so all three are happening. Right. And that's a lot to, hold in a body to be like, I need to heal from these things. And yet racism is still happening to me every day. And I'm anticipating the next, later today, hearing about the next black person who's been taken by white supremacy in in some way or challenged by white supremacy in some way. Um, And that makes it really hard to move just in all the ways, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And I don't know that when, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I'm not sure that I thought Um, things will get better. I did think we were in a moment where a movement was building and um, calling for um, action. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of white folks um, didn't pay attention to that and or paid attention for a moment and went back to sleep because it's actually a practice to build the resilience that is needed to continue to show up and, and be engaged with what's happening and be awake to it. And I think the same thing happened with George Floyd, that wait people woke up, it was a horrific moment. And yet these things like that have been happening for forever and ever. Um, and so I feel like I'm not surprised by what's happening. And um, it is a lot to navigate um, for many of us, uh, based on the different identities that we embody. And it's Think about the nervous system and what the nervous system and the heart, what they have to do as they're grieving and then anticipating loss and grief. Like that that puts someone in a state of hypervigilance and high alert, like all of the time. It's why actually my spiritual practice is, is so potent and really um, vital because I need something to make me be grounded in my body in a culture that doesn't want my body to be. Like I need something to settle me and center me because my nervous system would be overstimulated all of the time. Um, So it is daunting and here we are. And I do think, I don't know if things are worse. I don't know if they're getting worse. I don't know if we're just telling the truth about what's happening. I'm not exactly sure. My mother will say that things feel worse or different to her. And at the same time, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. At the same time, we never envisioned the Robert E. Lee statue being taken like away. We never thought that would ever, ever happen. So it's an odd time to be alive because that's happening and white supremacy is trying to hold on to itself and maintain itself in these really vehement ways. So um, I think this is daunting and I'm really excited to be alive now. And it's also odd at times to be on the planet right now with all that's going on.
0: Um. Talk about uh, the contribution bees specifically in, in, in nature at large make to helping us uh, with the work of healing collective grief.
1: Yes, there's a chapter, chapter six, about my honeybees. I have three honeybee hives. Um, and it's actually really interesting, the timing of your question and this conversation, because two of my hives have been robbed by other bees over the last few days. It's really made me think about the culture and collective care and a lack of resources and the myth of scarcity and how things actually just need to be redistributed. But in fact, for honeybees, there is scarcity probably because of humans. Um, And so I've had to be dealing with that and trying to protect the hives as they're trying to protect themselves. Um, And I feel like so much of what dominant culture has done is disconnect many of us from our connection to the planet and we're doing a lot of things to harm the planet. Um, And I think this comes from systems like capitalism and and white supremacy when I think about um, the attempt to genocide of indigenous people and what happened to the land and the connection to the land. Um, I mean, I think there are many systems that have disconnected us from self and also disconnected us from this planet that we get to live on for a little while. And so there is a call in finding refuge for us to reconnect to nature because it is a way for me, it's been a way to remember my interconnectedness with all beings and that I'm part of a large ecosystem that is quite fragile and that everything I do affects the ecosystem in some way. And not just other people, but all the beings around me, right? The honeybees, the trees, the streams, the fit, all everything. And I feel like part of what we need to do is is to find refuge in nature, but also to remember um, how fragile the ecosystem is so that we can make different choices about how we regard the planet and how we treat the planet and that we can actually be good stewards of the, the planet, the land we get to be on. Um, so in, you know, there's also a lot in this chapter in finding refuge about grief and loss and losing a hive and um, a hive thriving. And there are a lot of parallels to, to what's playing out um, now at this time. So when after George Zimmerman was acquitted, what the only thing at that moment in time that would really suit me was being out in the natural world. And the place I would go, I didn't even live in Winston, was Pilot Mountain. I would go there all of the time. And it was the only place that kind of made sense to me because I could see the natural cycles in nature. I could see the different parts because the world made no sense and it was really noisy. And so nature is where I go to, to reground and to fill up, but also to remember how reverent I need to be um, when it comes to honoring nature.
0: You began at least the, pro- the process, uh, the formulations of this text um, pre-COVID. Has the pandemic altered in any way your understanding of collective grief?
1: A hundred percent. Um, so I spoke earlier about how the moment, uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted, the ancestral trauma came up. And I also think my ancestors were like, we're going to have an assignment for you. (laughs) And I think finding refuge is like part of the assignment that they had for me. And this is what I understand about them and how they guide me and how interesting that the idea came to came to me before a global pandemic, and then it came out, came out in July 13th, which uh, still in the middle of the pandemic, and that's actually the day that George Zimmerman was acquitted eight years ago, um, which I think is so synchronistic, the cycle that is maybe completing itself, and so the backdrop for writing Finding Refuge was the pandemic, and here, waking up every morning, reading the New York Times, reading about how many people are dying, reading about the are we going to have a vaccination? Reading about people not wanting to wear masks and protect one another. I mean, that was every day. And so I was like holding this level of grief that I never expected to to be contending with as I was writing a book. And also it makes perfect sense that I was like, we are moving through this and and more talk and information and content is being offered about collective grief because now we have no choice. It's like, you know, the virus, which I wish it... We didn't have to experience it, and it wasn't happening. Um, it has illuminated so many things that we have to deal with. It's like we have to reckon with what's going on, what's happened, what it means to um, have a practice of individual care and not collective care. Like these are the things that the virus is saying, pay attention to, and and you know, pay attention to how you move through this. Um, so it was really fascinating to write this. And to be responding to the pandemic, um, and of course not just myself, but everyone around me, and to be to know, okay, we're having this experience of collective loss. Or are we going to pay attention to it?
0: Hmm. So, so with the advent of COVID, it's it seems the nation is assumed uh, under. Uh, a collective grief. You talked earlier about the multiple layers of collective grief that many people are already under. How do you assess our response in the moment to this thing called collective grief?
1: Um, Well, I feel like so many folks have been isolated for so long because of COVID and, and how we had to social distance. And I also know some people are essential workers and didn't have those same choices that I had. Um, to reconfigure my life and work in this particular way online. Like some people had to go to the hospital, some people had to go work in the grocery store. So I understand we're having different experiences of this moment too, or, or it's I keep calling it a moment, but it's not of this time. Um, and, you know, I feel like, um, what can you, you remind me of the I forgot the, the question.
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm sure. The, the, the question is very simply that that uh, you'd mentioned earlier about yeah the number of the levels of grief that people could be under plus this advent of covid so just us you know assess our collective response to all these yeah. collective okay. griefs it's plural now
1: <laughs> it was collective response got it thank you i was like collective grief but i couldn't remember the response part um and i was speaking about the isolation and so i i feel like, uh, there's there's grief related to that, too, this disconnection even more that we've been in. And so I feel like part of the response is how we come into community again? <laughs> how do we come together? And when we do come together, how can we acknowledge what we've just been through? Like, I feel like that is the question that everyone needs to be asking when they are able to come back together with folks. Like, how is your heart? How are you? What did we just go through? What are we going through now? What is needed now? Like these are essential questions that need to be surfaced. And I'm, I feel like the, the level of disconnection has amplified the need for us to come together in different ways. And to really, as so many people talked about during the, have talked about during the pandemic and actually prior to it, many of us were talking about collective care, there really is this question about how are we going to care for one another and if we are going to do that. Um so I think the response is about that like do we care about each other and how are we going to show that and how do we actually come into community together and and hold this grief um again as a way of of moving through the trauma so we don't create more trauma for each other.
0: Well given there are uh, in the present moment uh, these multiple tiers of grief what what role does denial play in this process?
1: Well you know I always say like and and my colleagues who do dismantling racism work too always say that you know systems like white supremacy condition us to forget, lie, pretend, deny. <laughs> um, and they do that in different. The system does it in different ways to us because some of us cannot deny what's going on. But that's really what dominant culture wants us to do: is to not see its toxicity, is to normalize things that are absurd and horrific, is to keep it moving even as more horrific things are happening. And I feel like. Part of the reason we are where we are is because of the ad- addiction to denial and the pattern of numbing out from what's going on. Um, and and that's not sustainable. And there are so many indicators that that's not sustainable. Like people are dying in many different ways, not just from COVID. And they're dying because other systems like racism are intersecting with COVID. And we already know our health outcomes are, are um, much worse uh, as compared to uh, Black folks and BIPOC folks as compared to white-bodied folks. So I don't think we can afford to deny. And yet I think capitalism wants us to be distracted (laughs) and to deny what's going on. And all the systems want us to to be like, this isn't really happening. we just can't do that or we will continue to die. Like, this is what I always say. People are dying. We can pay attention to it or not, but people will continue to die the longer we do not attend to it. And the reasons why they're dying, we have to attend to that as well.
0: It, it seems to me, uh, my words, one of the major differences uh, between grief on, on the grand scale and that, which is unique to communities that you that you previously mentioned, is that the the former tends to, tends to be seasonal, whether it's nine eleven or uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, and in the and the latter uh You know, racism, uh, LGBT equality, uh, gender equalities, uh, you know, and the like are are generational. So, for example, the shelf life of the collective grief is is more likely to come to a conclusion before that of, say, those in the African-American community or any other community who have intimate knowledge of collective grief. And is that, in your view, uh, did I oversimplify it? How how do you see that?
1: No, I think... I think in this particular moment that some people, well, clearly some people are acting like we're not still in a pandemic, so there's that. Um, and that it was over months ago. And I think that's an indication of what you're naming. That it was a moment in time, it happened, and now something else is happening. That's false. <laughs> like it's still happening. And so we have to do something to, to remember, like this is still happening. And many things happened before this that we need to pay attention to and i mean my hope is that we'll do something something different than what happened with the um, events that you named around Katrina and 9-11, although I would say the people most deeply impacted by those things are, are still well aware of them and still gathering around them and still, I'm thinking about Katrina, trying to figure out how to heal and repair their communities and get resources to do that. So the people most impacted are, are well aware it's an ongoing process, but the people who are able to say, that's done, it's not affecting me, are able to say, that's over and what I want people to do is say what happened, what did we not pay attention to and what is still currently happening? And what do we need? Um, that's what I want people to do because we're gonna be living with the effects of this pandemic for, I mean, decades. Think about children. like the children who go to school and wear masks, the children who have OCD because they've had to wash their hands a gazillion times, you know, like children who are afraid. There's so much uncertainty. We can think about uncertainty for adults, but think about the children who are very resilient, by the way, but everything shifted for them. So we're going to be dealing with that. Think about the hospital workers um, or the people who lost many people and their families are one person. That That doesn't go anywhere. We can pretend it does, but it's going to, we're going to be Responding to this for a long time, and so I want people to build that muscle, the ability to, to to be with what is instead of saying it's over when it's actually not.
0: I, I know that you uh, mentioned earlier in our conversation that you were working on another text right now, but I'm wondering, uh, just given given your responses to to this conversation, that COVID raises perhaps an epilogue. Should you uh, do a second edition of? Uh, finding refuge, um, what happens when the dominant culture suffers from collective grief? Your thoughts.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I think that, that the dominant culture, those who are in closer proximity to power, are suffering um, and are not acknowledging their suffering or the ways in which their suffering is causing suffering for others. So, I mean, I think we are all suffering differently, um, disparately, but I think um, folks who, who have power are suffering too. That is not me giving them a pass. It is acknowledging that their suffering has caused suffering for me and suffering for the planet and suffering for others. And based on where I have power, I'm probably causing suffering for someone else, right? This is what happens. And so um, the longer that, I feel like folks in the dominant culture don't recognize their suffering and work through it and the way they're causing suffering for others, um, the more trauma we're gonna have. And so, and, you know, many people talk about this um, related to white-bodied folks that part of their patterns, Resma talks about this, which then became became culture. Their patterns came from trauma that was never, their own trauma that was never resolved. And and so there's like deep work that needs to happen there. I'm not waiting for that to happen for me to be free, but I know there's deep work that needs to happen there or these patterns that we've been in conversation about today will continue um, for, I mean, into the future, well into the future. Mm.
0: Michelle Cassandra Johnson, author of Finding Refuge, hard work for healing collective grief. I, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on The Public Morality. Your, your insights have been much appreciated.
1: Thank you so much.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Reality on WSNC can now listen on its new app. Using your mobile device, simply click on your application page, search WSNC 90.5, click open, and listen from anywhere. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Reality at their studios. The Public Reality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.